Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community of Slack with us in real time during the show in the Go Time FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelog.com slash live or subscribe at changelog.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Time. Today we are bringing on a guest, Dan Scales. Uh, you want to say hi, Dan? Hello. And then we have our normal panelists, uh, or some of them, uh, Matt Ryer. Hello. And Carmen Ando. Hello. And myself, John Calhoun. So today we're going to be talking about Matt's favorite subject, defer. So uh, Matt, I'll let you go ahead and kick it off. What do you want to know about defer today? Well, first of all, it genuinely is my favorite feature of the language. Nice. Yeah, it's it stands out because it, it just has this kind of readability aspect to it. Apart from it, the functional kind of use of it, it makes it so clear what you intend. And anything that does that, I always think is great. And so defer is a great example for anybody that might be new to Go, mm-hmm. uh, who doesn't know what defer is, um, I'm happy to give a little overview from my perspective and, and then we're going to definitely dig into it deeper with uh, Dan sure. as well, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah, so essentially you tell it to call a function when another function exits. So when you leave whichever function you're in, anything you've deferred will then get called. So it's a bit like saying, yeah, defer this function and however you exit from this, exactly. then yeah, we want the defers to run. And that's nice because, well, we'll talk about, I suppose, use cases. Yeah, so the use cases, actually, then, of, of this simple... It's, it's quite a simple little thing, I think, but has kind of amazing uh, utility. Yeah, definitely. I think it solves a problem that you kind of run into if you don't have it, which is you, you want to take care of some things at the end of the function. You want to make sure they get done, and you want to make sure they get done even as the code changes and evolves, right? So it helps with maintainability. You want to put right near, you know, you opening a file, you want to put right near that uh, statement where you open the file, you want to put something that says, I need to close the file at the end of the function. And, um, you know, the classic way in, say, C or something is to, you know, at every single exit point, you've got to put a close there. And, you know, the defer is just a really nice way to express it. And it's right near the open. So, so it's very well expressed. 
And um, you can contrast it with other languages, just like a try finally in Java or JavaScript, which is doing something similar. A try finally is a, another contract which says, you know, do some code, and at the end of it, make sure you do something in the finally clause. But that finally, that stuff in the finally clause is pretty far away from where you did the open. So. Just as you said, one of your th nice things is to write there, and I, I agree with that. It really makes it obvious. I want to get this done, and it needs to be done. And with try finally, you could easily end up nesting things quite a lot. If you're trying to open a few files, and then you want to make sure they're all closed, and maybe you're make, uh, making some API calls as well, and doing a few other things, you can end up with really sort of deeply nested try-catch blocks all over the place. And one of the things defer gives you is that it doesn't do that, does it? No, exactly. It's it's not nested in that way. And, you know, I think uh, because of the nesting, you can either do that nesting or because people don't really want to do the nesting in the try finally, usually they put a lot of conditionals in the finally block. So what they'll do is they'll have one try and they'll usually say, you know, if this file handler is not equal to nil, which means I did an open earlier, then I'm going to close. Does that make mm. sense? And so they'll have a whole bunch of conditionals. And so the nice thing about defer is you don't have those conditionals. You just, at the point where you actually open the file and you definitely did it, then you put the defer and then the, the Go will take care of running it exactly when you, you actually did the defer. I used to think that defer was a compile time operation where it literally just copied the code at the exit points. But of course, when you consider that you can schedule defer statements inside loops and all sorts of things, and conditionally, so yeah, it, it isn't that, is it? No, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's definitely much more dynamic construct than the try finally, or uh, we can talk about the kind of the equivalent in C++ in a little bit. But uh, those are kind of more static constructs, and therefore the compiler knows everything. And when and where you run that finally clause is, is of course, determined. But the defer, you don't... It's, the compiler doesn't know if you're actually going to run the defer, need to run the defer, if it's in a conditional or a loop. And so, yes, so the implementation in Go has to account for the fact that it can be dynamic. And so you have to have kind of a general implementation that depends somewhat on the runtime in order to deal with those dynamic cases. And then the optimization that we've been doing over time is to kind of deal with those simpler cases more statically. And so that's, of course, uh, the, the optimization we'll talk about later that I did does kind of what you said, which is in the simpler cases, actually run that code right at the exit, uh, as you would, might expect in the non-loop cases. Hmm, I see. But where it's more complicated and it can't do that, it falls back to the previous mechanism. Exactly, exactly, yes. Oh, yes, that's very cool. So you mentioned what you did. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about where you work and what you're doing, a bit about what you've been doing as well. It'd be quite interesting to hear about. In the past as well as in the current Go group or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, I've always been interested in uh, kind of low-level uh, system-y stuff, both parallel and distributed processing, operating systems, but also compilers and languages. So I've kind of been doing a little bit of the circuit and some kind of parallel and distributed work in PC thesis and, and work after that. And then I was at VMware for a fair bit of time and did a lot of operating system stuff. But that kind of involves distributed systems as well, because we do a lot with high availability and keeping virtual machines highly available and restarting them and so forth. And also at of being where I focus a fair bit on high-performance storage and virtualizing storage. So uh, did 
quite a variety of stuff. And then, you know, I wanted to get back to kind of lower level stuff like uh, compilers and system stuff after doing other things for a while. And so I transferred to the Go team about a year ago uh, within Google and um, just was interested in doing languages and compilers. And I have done compiler work in the past. So I've worked a little bit, uh, a fair bit of time on some stuff to help optimize Go usage in Google, Google itself. And then in the last six months or so, I've been you know, working with the compiler and runtime people and kind of a new, you know, newer person compared to a lot of the more senior people here, you know, got this very interesting project to optimize defers further. Yes. Well, that sounds great. And this project to optimize defer is a kind of a great one because one of the things I love about the way that the, the situation is at the moment with Go is that we can use these language features somewhat liberally. And I tend to use them somewhat liberally. And sometimes there's there's a performance, there's like a trade-off between the performance and the readability. And so, you know, occasionally it's worth having very difficult to read code if, in your particular case, it's valuable that it is very performant. And so I I get that for sure. And there are sometimes in my code where I've eventually optimized away some defers but mostly not but what were the performance issues like what what's the actual problem yeah so it's um you know defers in general are not amazingly expensive uh uh, or you know and they've been optimized quite a bit over the last couple years there have been a number of steps of optimization um so you know in most cases um you don't see the overhead but there are some very common cases uh where you might you do see the overhead and that's when you defer a function that's fairly inexpensive and uh, you know one of the most common cases um is lock unlock and that's you know so a, a, a lock an unlock operation is a very inexpensive in the common case, when you hold the lock, of course, because you're basically just sort of setting a lock to zero. Um, and so, but we don't want to discourage people from doing that because that's a perfect usage of defer. So, so we want to optimize defer. So in, in the common case, in the cases where it's, it's not so dynamic and you can analyze everything, we want to make it very inexpensive so that you don't even see overhead or much overhead for, you know, deferring an unlock or say deferring an atomic operation. Or, you know, often I see, you know, maybe you have a parser and, you know, you kind of bump up a nesting level at the beginning of a function or something and you defer the, the bumping of the nesting level down. So all those functions can be very inexpensive. And so you want to make sure the defer over it doesn't dominate those functions. Of course, you could use defer in other cases for open and close of files. That doesn't matter as much because an open of a file is probably somewhat expensive. And, you know, another way to think of it is also, we also want to be closer to what C++ say is. And C++ has a kind of an equivalent feature, which is basically it guarantees to run destructors of um, of variables when you leave the scope of the variable. So is that where it's a it's a class that has a, a destructor? Yes, exactly. So you may allocate um, just a, a normal object, for instance, and it has a constructor, and you, you declare the variable at the beginning of the block. And if that class of that variable has a constructor, you run the constructor at the time that you kind of enter the block. And then C++ guarantees that you will run the destructor at the end of the block. And that may kind of deallocate sub-objects or whatnot. And the main thing is it guarantees it no matter what, whether you return early from the function out of the block or also, again, like defer if you're panicking. And that's especially important, just like defer, if you're kind of holding on to a resource, you know, which is a common case for whether it's a lock or a file. And so... C++, uh, the, one of the acronyms that's used that came from, I think, 
Bjorn, Bjorn Tristop is resource acquisition is initialization, which is called RAII. But in any case, he's basically just saying that you can express kind of acquiring a resource and then guaranteeing that you're going to release at the end of the block by initializing a variable. Uh, and so what people do is, for instance, they might have a class which is basically a lock, and they acquire it at the beginning of the block, and then just by exiting the block, the lock is, is released. So all that was kind of a description to say, well, C++, especially GCC, has made that overhead basically uh, zero. They do the right thing. They generate code at the end of the block um, that just ca calls the unlock call. And so, um, you know, it's very low overhead for that. And then they do the extra work to make sure it happens at panic time. And so, you know, if we can get closer to that um, just all the time, then people don't have to think about it for defer as well. Mm, that's very interesting. It's funny, you mentioned a little nugget there, which is something that surprises a lot of people, I found, which is that, of course, well, not of course at all, actually, and, I, and this surprised me in the beginning, but when code panics, the defers still run. And that's actually yeah. good to know, but I suppose also speaks a little bit to defers history, doesn't it? Yeah, so if you want to get a little bit into the history, I think, and I don't, I'm not the super expert on this, but I've been asking around, I think, you know, most errors are, are handled using error returns, as people know. But there is always a need for a panic because there's always a case where you run into a bug or say divide by zero or something and you're going to have to do a panic because there's no kind of logical way to continue immediately. So the creators of Go knew they had a panic and they knew they kind of had to have mechanisms to deal with it. In particular, sometimes you actually even want to recover from a, a runtime panic. And one case for that, you might say, well, yeah, this is a bug. You know, why do you want to deal with this? You know, most of the time you don't, but you want to just let the program crash. But suppose you have, a, say, a web server that has multiple threads and they're handling requests. And, you know, you want that web server to be kind of reliable and up, even if there's maybe a bug somewhere. And so you have multiple Go routines serving requests, and one of the Go routines may run into a bug and panic. You may still want to do what's called recover. You may want to kind of catch that panic on the way out and, you know, just say, okay, I'm just going to kill this Go routine, but I need to continue the web server. So the creators of Go, and in particular, Ken Thompson, said I knew he kind of wanted to deal with kind of maybe deal with panics and maybe have some way of recovering them or modifying them. And so uh, the defer was a way to do that. And so one context for defer is it's a way to run code as you're doing a panic, either to release resources, which are important, and it's especially important if you're going to do a recover, which means you want to release resources um, that might be otherwise held by the web server that's continuing. And then also you may want to do this recover step after you release resources, which says, okay, I want to keep running. I don't want to kill the entire program. I want to kind of recover out, kill my Go routine, and then you know maybe spawn another Go routine or what, whatnot. Yeah. Well, the default behavior is that if a panic happens inside an HTTP handler, it just prints the panic out into the terminal, doesn't it, and carries on. It doesn't crash the program. I think because there's a recover there. Uh, right. So yeah. they've, they've recovered exactly. it in the standard library. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I know Like one of the things I've found panic recovery useful for is if you're using another library that like you don't have control of and you can't change for some reason and they happen to panic at some instance where you don't fully agree with. Mm -hmm. I know I found that you really useful is like, okay, I can actually capture this in my code and and handle it in some better way or do something better about it. So I think another, maybe it wasn't what they were thinking about, but one useful side effect of that is that 
you can use code that you don't necessarily agree with how they handled their errors and you can still make use of it and you know, not have to recreate that entire library or whatever it is because that would be a massive pain if that's how it worked all the time. Yes, that totally makes sense. Definitely. You, the code that you don't have control over has a bug in it, say. And so for certain things, you want to make sure your program doesn't crash if they have a bug in their program, or as you said, you don't agree with the error that they are indicating. So at a high level, does somebody want to go over just like what that recovery looks like? Like why we need to use defer, how you would use defer? Because I know we've talked about it. I'm guessing most listeners have seen this, but just at a high level. Yeah, well, you tend to use an anonymous function, don't you? So you defer the function and do it in line. And then there's a block. So you have a kind of, at the top of the function, a block of code that is in a defer. So you know that this is going to run at the end. And then you you call, it's a built-in function, is it? Yes. I suppose? Yeah, it's a function called recover. Mm. And And what does that return? That returns, so it, it, there's a bunch of specifications on when that actually can ses- successfully recover. For instance, it needs to be running in a top-level defer during the panic sequence. So as you said, if you have a defer in a function, that you maybe deferred this inline function at the top of a function, and now you had a panic, say the current function called a bunch of functions and had a panic, as you're doing what's called stack unwinding and running your defers, if you run into a particular defer, that directly calls recover, then you can successfully run it, recover that panic. And with that successful panic, the recover function will return the value of the panic, what you supplied to the panic. And it could be you know, an error object or a string or whatever. And that defer function finishes, and as long as it finishes successfully, then now you're kind of out of panic mode. And you'll finish any other defers in the function, and then you'll return to the caller. So um, you basically the panic has kind of ended kind of all your functions up to the point of the recover. But the recover allows you to then return to the, the caller of the one that did the recover. And so, you know, at that point, at web server, whatever, you can continue on. Yeah. I think one of the cases I've seen that this combos really well with is using named return variables gives you the option to actually set a return value yourself then. So like a lot of people I know will look at named return variables and you know, you have different opinions about whether or not you should use them. But one of the most obvious and like most common probably use cases is when you need to recover from a panic and then you need to actually return some sort of error to say like there was an error and like I actually want this to turn into an error rather than a panic. Exactly. Yeah. So you can translate kind of the panic error or whatever to a, a return value error. Exactly. Yes. This episode is brought to you by GoCD with native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started. GoCD is an easy choice for cloud native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new elastic agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org Kubernetes. Again, gocd.org Kubernetes. Thank you. 
As a general rule, I try and exclusively use errors, and I try not to use panics at all. So it was interesting that that was where defer kind of came from, wasn't it? It was in order to be able to recover from panics that they needed the this feature. Mm-hmm. Is that right, Dan? And then and so that's where defer came from in for that case. It's just funny in my particular case, I never use the panic, but I use the defer all the time. Yeah, it was kind of a good combination that defer can be used for both recover and for the just kind of more standard ways of, of releasing resources. And I don't we don't want to overemphasize the recover or the panic case because that's certainly not the Go methodology. The Go method of having normal errors that you expect or whatever is obviously return values. And so you don't want to depend on recover, panic recover as a way to return errors very often. They have to be very unusual because that that path is not optimized, right? And so the normal case of returning errors by return value, it's definitely you can do it and definitely is a good way of, as you said, of, of dealing with kind of packages you don't control and errors you don't expect and so forth. But yes, I think it's very nice that defer is used both for dealing with the cover, but I would say even more importantly at this point, doing that re- the resource, releasing of resources and the guaranteeing of the function. That part is the one that is a really nice feature that helps you maintain your code and lets you do these interesting stuff. For me, it's kind of like note taking as I write code. Like it's like, oh, I open this file. Here's a little note to close it. And like I found, you know, just in everyday life stuff, I'm better if I take notes like that. So it's like interesting that in code, we can now express that and you know, very clearly say, okay, this is something I need to do. But I mean, you've already done it by doing that, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. And I, I know people have their favorite constructs in different languages, try finally, whatever. But I do think defer fits well with the Go language. You know, it's very explicit. Go tends to not have too many hidden functions or anything or, or you know, functions off and another thing. So it, it, it's very nice to just have that, you know, explicit, this is what I need to do. And it's right near the open. It's so expressive. I will go as far sometimes as to structure my code so that I can use defers. Mm-hmm. For example, if I do have a for loop and it's going to go and process a, a, a slice of things, I could just do the work in there and defer things. But of course, if you're in a loop and you're going to open a file, you probably well, you might want that file to be closed before you open the next one. And so having a just a, a, another inline function that's just sort of called immediately and then using defers within that function, it is an extra level of nesting, but the readability of that code that you get, the fact you can just use defers in that sort of very liberal way is, is so nice when it comes to maintainability. And we've talked about in the past about glankability too and just conceptual overheads. And that's, I know that try finally might work for other people's ways of thinking, but I do think that defer is more of a human way of thinking. We just have a natural inclination to think about what, what done looks like when you start the thing. And we often lose in a try finally paradigm, at least when I did, I would forget if I didn't make that or structure that or put that in now, it would, you know, you would forget. And also the ability that this, your nesting mat doesn't have, um, you can safely defer, uh, nest defer in a way that you can't do that with try finally. Yeah, that's true. It's also interesting how, like, I feel like the Go community has embraced the way defer works to the point that you see people writing code where you'll call a function to set something up and it returns a teardown function. So you'll very commonly see people like, okay, I called this and it returns teardown and then I immediately called defer teardown. And like the fact that people have noticed like this makes such a big impact on readability and I don't want to think about how to tear this down, like the function that sets it up should have to deal with that, not me. 
Yeah, that's the nice thing about that. When the function, it is about keeping the tidy up close to where you're allocating the resources. It's, it's just, it's easy, it's literally easier. It's harder to forget to do it, essentially. But I do love that pattern where you return the cleanup function. I do it a lot in, uh, if I have test helpers that are starting servers or anything. And you can hide a lot of stuff inside a function then and change it later without touching the API. You know that you've asked the user to defer this function, so you know that it's going to get called kind of teardown time. So you can use that and add features to existing things just by having that as a pattern. It's a great one. Context does it too when you do with cancel. You cancel, cancel yes. that. Yeah, and they ask you actually to defer that immediately regardless, I think, don't they? Because there's uh, with the timeout one, there's resources that are created that need cleaning up. Exactly. Yeah, I like that pattern as well, yes. Yeah. Another one that I use is uh, if I want to like do some simple sort of debugging, sometimes there's one where... I actually did a, uh, I mentioned this in one of my talks and I heard later some feedback. Someone just said that they thought I was an idiot for this, for this thing that I'm about to repeat now for some reason. Um, but it was essentially, um, if I had lots of log statements and I was trying to debug something by kind of generating the logs and having a, a, a look at what's actually happened and sort of tracing really and unofficially. And sometimes you have log just log calls peppered throughout your code and it's very useful to just log something like either a a string that's just a line of hyphens or something and then defer the same thing so that you print out a line of hyphens and then when that function defers when when it exits it prints out the other line so you can kind of then capture a little snapshot and and it's a really practical way of just having a look given a potentially a lot of output just to have a look at specific functions and if you mix that with the time then it's quite easy to create get a little timestamp at the beginning and defer printing or capturing in some other place the now sub that time and see the duration then of how long that function took to run things like that absurdly useful and very very easy to express with defer. Yeah, and especially uh, nice to use with uh, closures with, with inline functions. You know you, you know, you don't have to have a separate function you're deferring, you just have code right there. Yes. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. There's some interesting things around that, aren't there? So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what literally is going on when we defer something. Because when does the function get called? And if we pass, what happens if we pass an argument into mm-hmm. that function? Yeah. Yeah, I like the design of defer also because it, it um, deals with a little issue that you sometimes run to run into when you use these closures, these inline functions, which is, uh, do you want to use the value of the variable when you ran, when you sort of declared the function or do you want to use the value when you ran it? And so, okay, so defer statement is a, a defer keyword plus a function or a closure, an inline function, and then a set of arguments. And the semantics is you evaluate the function or the function pointer, you know, not run the function, but you evaluate if it's like a method call or something. And then you evaluate the arguments and you save the arguments and kind of what the function is. And you store them away so that they can run and exit. And so you evaluate, the important thing is you evaluate the arguments at the time of the defer statement. However, if you have a closure, a function with the func keyword, anonymous function, 
then you can also look at variables at the time that you run the defer, right? Because that can look at functions, local variables in the function. So you get kind of the combination of both worlds. If you want to make sure you evaluate a value right at the defer statement, and that's what you're going to use, you know, the file to be closed or whatever, then you can use it as an argument. And then you're sure that that, that value evaluated is what you're going to use at the end of the function. But on the other hand, if you want to look at local variables at the exit and how they've changed, then you can use the, the closure part and look at the local variable. And so that's exactly how you can do some of the timing tricks or whatever, or various things. You can look at, you can change error values and so forth. So the last part you were talking about, that is what they're doing. Like with all the error wrapping stuff, you see a lot of code that comes out now where they defer a function that will check to see if an error is nil. And if it is, they'll go ahead and wrap it at that point. Exactly. That's using that latter part where you're saying it's looking at what the actual error was, you know, at that time. And that makes that possible because, you know, you're waiting to actually look and see what the error was. But if they wanted to actually look at a value directly, then it would be the last set of parentheses. Whenever they call defer, they would pass something in there, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And you often have bugs when people use closures, these anonymous functions, you often have bugs where they, you know, they think they're using the value at the time kind of uh, that they created the function, uh, but they're really using it at the end. And so you get bugs when you're running them in loops and so forth. So it's nice that it separates out the arguments that you evaluate at defer time with the other stuff you can look at if you want using the closure. But alternatively, you could just have a normal function, in which case you, you, know, you don't get to look at the local variables, but it might be more useful in other cases. Um, so that gets into the implementation, which is that we, you know, um, however you're going to implement the defer, you have to run the arguments and evaluate the arguments and what kind of function you're going to be running at defer time and store it away. And then so we can get and then at, at exit time, you have to run that. So we can get more into the detail of the implementation uh, whenever. I've got one other question, though. Mm -hmm. So panics don't stop defers. Is there anything that will stop a defer from running? Apart from, I mean, obviously, you know, frisbeeing your laptop across the room would, <laughs> might stop, stop defers as well. But are there any other things you can do in code to, that will prevent defers from running? No. Uh, stack unwinding is guaranteed. Uh, I think there might be in a, you know, some kind of runtime abort that will you know, completely terminate the um, OS process maybe. with no cleanup at all, but otherwise, you know, the guarantee is that you unwind the stack during a panic uh, and uh, do these defers. Do they run on OS exit? I think that terminates. They run on Go exit, which is to exit a thread, and I'm pretty sure they run on OS exit as well. So I think it's a board. I have to check can't on stop that. Them. Yeah, we can't stop them. Then that's the thing. So we've got to be careful how many we start. Yes, there might be other aborts. I mean, obviously, they don't happen if you kill the process. And, and then there may right. be another kind of an abort that you can do, which is just end the probe, you know. But I think on OS exit, they do. And they definitely do on a thing called Go exit, which is to terminate a Go routine. Mm. You could probably open Slack. That would probably do it as well. That kills my computer. Uh, I see. I get it. Yes. <laughs> or yeah, don't yes. Worry. pull the plug. Don't worry. We'll, don't worry. We'll edit in laughter later. Right, right. I see. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, Dan. <laughs> So here's, here's another one that's a very practical thing. When you close a file, that function can return an error. So if you just defer calling close, we aren't catching that error at all sometimes. Mm -hmm. What's the right thing to do there? Yeah, I think that's just a trade-off. I think Go tends to want to catch all errors, but, but close, a close error is kind of uh, you know, maybe slightly less interesting. So we want to catch the main errors. 
But, you know, I think defer, but defer does give you the mechanism to, to deal with it because instead of saying defer os.close or, you know, file.close or whatever, you can use a, a closure or an inline function and actually run it and get the error value and then merge it into the error return of the function. So you can, if you really want to find out that, you know, the close failed, um, you can kind of, you can merge it in and make it part of the error return of the function. I don't know if you guys have ever done that or I, I haven't particularly tried to do anything. I, I certainly have, you know, merged errors into function, but not close. You're not supposed to say the last bit. You're supposed to say, Matt, we can't help but you're writing bad code. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, it could have made me feel bad. Yeah, I think I've I've done that and logged it just because I want to see what could happen, but um, nothing's happened yet. Right. So I'm still waiting, yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I thought I wondered whether it, it was that signature just to satisfy IO closer or something like there was some early decision to have a, a closer type. Is it IO closer? Yeah, I think so. A close interface, closer interface with a close method and, and sometimes closing things, you know, it can, there can be an error, especially if it's writing and, and, and yeah. it's going to finish writing. writing some things or something. Yeah. Um, I wondered if it was just left over from that because, but what, what can happen if you cl- close a file it just doesn't close <laughs> then what it's like if we're not in control of the computers dan do you know what i mean you know if you're doing a database you probably do want to check the close and probably in other situations you know it probably is checked because you know during a close you may you may not have written out the whole file and so you you know part of the close is writing out the final buffer length of the file buffer amount of the file and so you know, it is actually, you know, to be really safe, you probably should be checking the error code of the close and therefore, you know, express the defer in such a way so you can modify the error code. Maybe you just open the file for read, in which case it doesn't matter so much. <laughs> but fortunately, like unlock has no return value, you know, unlock basically always succeeds. So, um, you know, defer unlock makes sense and lots of other things, of course. Matt, your code's going to get pretty boring if you uh, just cut out everything you don't want to deal with. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And well, it won't, won't be very functional either. <laughs> He's already like banned else statements and a bunch of other things. So, no. <laughs> well, no, I mean, please, please help yourselves. But um, actually, the, there's, there's, there's that trick of if you flip the if statement, you can sometimes it's about dealing with the errors early and exiting early and keeping the line of sight down one edge really clear. That was the thinking behind it yeah but actually yeah it's, it's not i mean defer i think is just sort of stands out and i think i saw it after a few years after i was started with go i saw it turn up in the swift language as well um it works slightly differently i think it does it on the block is that right it is on the block level yes i haven't used it at all it's kind of a little more integrated with the language in the sense that it actually is a defer and then a block, not a function, but it's a block of code. So, you know, you can kind of think of it as a, a closure or an inline function, but but it doesn't allow you to call a function call except if you put it in that block. Yeah, so it's interesting. They I, they definitely adopted it from Go as far as we would guess, uh, went with the block level. Um, and that, I, I think you could see it either way. One thing to note is you can't do conditional defers with a with that kind of a defer because you know you do an if and you have a block and then you do a, a defer you're gonna you know you're gonna immediately uh, do the deferred operation at the end of the if which is not what you want so the go defer runs at the function level is a little different I can see running at block level too but it definitely is uh, more useful for kind of these conditional cases 
Well, I kind of simulate that block behavior when I just have these little funct- inline functions. That's kind of what I'm doing, really, because I am defining the block that I want the defers to run after. And so, exactly. Yeah, I think it is. Yes. So, Go114 has uh, some little treats in it for us, doesn't it, Dan? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, there are several performance optimizations, of which one relates to defer. And um, th- this is uh, work that I did, and it was um, from some ideas from a bunch of people in the group. And the idea was, as we started talking about, is kind of make the overhead lower in the more common cases. And, and that's what's been going on in the last few releases. Uh, the defer has been steadily getting faster in some of the common cases. And so in this release, we want to make it even faster. And basically, you can think of it as we're running the function calls directly at the exit. So it's kind of direct, the compiler is directly generating those, those function calls at the exit. And kind of just as I think you were saying, that's how you think of it. And in the common case where we can do it. But we also do deal, so we deal... We can do that in in most of the frequent cases of defer. The only so this optimization is not turned on if any defer in the function is in a loop. However, we do do it if they're in conditionals. So, uh, if all the defers in your function are either just straight defers, no conditional, or they're in a conditional, then we will do the optimization that I'll describe. If any defer is in a loop, then we will not do that optimization yet, and we'll do kind of the standard runtime thing. But do do you have to copy the conditional then? You want me to get into the details here? Um, Oh, yes, please, because this is way too interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the notion is that at any defer statement, let me see, let me me describe the the current way before the optimization. Mm. The current way is at any defer statement, what you do is you kind of create a record, a defer record, and in that record, you put you evaluate all the arguments and the function pointer that you need to defer, and you put that those that information in the record, and you kind of add it to a a, a chain and a chain in the runtime that's kind of a defer that you're going to have to run later. And then at all exits, you call into the runtime and you run the appropriate defers. So there's definitely runtime overhead as you're kind of adding to the chain in the runtime, and then at the exit, you're jumping into the runtime saying run all the defers that are on that that link list. So the optimization is, again, in this case where there are no defers and loops, is that we're going to generate inline code at, at each defer. And at that defer, we're going to do, as we did before, we're going to evaluate the arguments and the function pointer. But now we're just going to store it in some stack slots, so basically in some, some local variable space. And we're going to, you know, the compiler is going to, of course, keep track of, you know, where those, that data is stored. Uh, and the other thing we're going to do is we're going to store a bit in a bit mass. It says this defer was activated. Okay, so uh, this defer statement was run. So that, that's the way we deal with conditionals. And so as you're running through the function, you're storing the defer arguments and the function pointers, and you're storing in that bit mask what defers have run. And then at any exit, we generate, again, inline code that says, um, you know, if this bit is set in the defer bit mask, grab these arguments and this function pointer from the stack slots and run it. And we go through in kind of last and first out order, as defers define, to run those, uh, any of the active defers. And one thing to quickly say, though, is that this is all at the compiler level that we put in those checks for the defer bits and stuff. So actually, if there are no conditionals, all the defer bit checks go away. Because the compiler knows you set a one and then you checked for one. And you set a second bit and you checked for a second bit. So they go away. You do have to still set the defer bits because... We're going to need to know about that stuff for panic and so forth. I can get into more details on that. But 
in the normal case, you'll kind of store all those arguments, set the defer bits, and then on the exit, you'll run those. It was great. It was, it's really clever. So the, making it work with conditionals is, I think, a bit of a genius move. I think that is a bit of a genius stroke because I think it's quite clear that if you think about how could you optimize defers, then yeah, just statically have a look, see what gets called and just put them in, in the exit points. It sort of seems quite simple. But but yeah, to make that work with conditionals and then with loops, it's, it's got to be impossible, hasn't it? That kind of approach. Yeah, you need some kind of runtime thing because of course you're going to have to save an arbitrary amount of information, right? So you need some kind of linked list, which is what we already have in the kind of uh, previous uh, implementation, the more general implementation. So if you have a loop, you could call defer 100 times and, and where are you going to put all that information? You're going to have to do some heap allocation and so forth. So when you were deciding to support if statements, did you do any sort of like code analysis or anything to kind of say like, this is something we absolutely need to cover? Or was it more just you know, we should probably just do it so we did it. Yeah, because I would have definitely said, right, well, if you can forget about conditionals. <laughs> yeah. I would have been the same thing. I would have been like, too much work up front. Yeah, yeah, yeah I see. You know, we had the notion on the conditional first, and then a little bit along the way, we realized that for the case where there are no conditionals, all that code would kind of go away. And so we realized, okay, it's not that much cost. And then the other thing is... Um, you need the defer bits anyways, because you need to, um, in the case of a panic, you need to know, you know, how far in the function you got, how many defers you ran and so forth. And so you're either going to have to look at some stack thing or you're going to have to look at the defer bits to know, um, we can get more into that about how, what we do for the panic. But in the panic case, you know, you're kind of, you're many frames up and you're doing this panic and you're going through the stack and you need an easy way to know which defers are actually active. So the defer fits made sense for a number of cases and the overhead, uh, especially panic. And then, you know, the overhead, uh, some of the overhead, uh, a bit of the overhead goes away anyways for in the non-conditional case. So it, it, we do have a mix. I did not do a percentage wise of, of um, in the Go library of how many have conditionals, but there certainly are a fair number. So when you were like considering conditionals, do you consider panic a conditional then in a sense that, I mean, I guess technically you'd have to have an if statement for that panic to become conditional. So that would kind of, or I don't know if like a runtime, technically you could like access a, an array index that's not there or something. So I don't know. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, you cannot know, you cannot know statically that a panic's going to happen because there might be some uh, uh, reference past uh, an array bound or something. I would say panic is conditional in the sense that that's kind of why also we need the diverpits, which is, or some mechanism to figure out how far you've gotten into the function. There are other ways to do that, but the diverpits works out well for both. That in either in a normal exit or in a panic exit, you can look at the diverpits and it'll tell you how many defers you've run into and how far down you've got. So is it one thing that runs at the end at any exit point? Does it, you know what I mean? Or do you literally copy like the instructions? Uh, you literally call each of the functions. So it, it is not just one big function and then that function calls, um, you know, a bunch of functions um, currently. And, th and there are many choices. We could change this in the future uh, with respect to the compiler. But right now we're literally calling the functions in the last, last in, first out order. And depending whether it's conditional or not, it may be depending on the divert bits or not. But so you're basically saying, you know, if this bit is set, run this, 
you know, your second deferred function. And if this bit is set, run your first deferred function. And then if, if, if there are no conditionals, then it would just be call for second deferred function, call first deferred function. Um, so in the simplest case, it's very optimized in that sense and kind of what you might imagine. And there's always certain choices, more, more optimization that we could do, or there are other ways of doing it. And so we can certainly analyze further to see what's best, but uh, it's working out reasonably well. It's funny because I wrote myself a little tool which took my Go code and did the, the first optimization that you talked about okay. where it, it just and it just would comment out the defer line and then put the copy the you know, it was very rudimentary, it was just kind of an experiment. No, that's actually a good point. That's exactly what people do a lot of times is is of course, you know, the defer overhead is showing up um, in their profile. So then they do exactly what you said, which is they take the defer statements, comment them out, and put the functions at the end. And so, you know, this is good that we're doing this compiler optimization. They do it manually, though. <laughs> they I, do it, I, no, exactly. I had a tool that did it for me. <laughs> no, but genuinely, so my source code would stay looking with defers, so it was readable. Oh, it I was see. Just, it was an automatic part yeah. of the build process. A, a post-processor. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why I didn't tell anyone about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, hopefully you can uh, not do that as much, maybe, with the optimization, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, and because the other important thing, of course, is you might not put it in all of the exits. Or, or, well, you will, because you're doing it automatically. And you're also not dealing with panic uh, as well. So, you know, right. we, we'd rather, especially if you're deferring a, an unlock and you want your web server to continue on, you really want to make sure that unlock happens because you might, that uh, thread that's about to die, but you're going to continue the web server might hold on to a lock that's important for all the other threads. Mm. If you like this show, I bet you'd enjoy listening to Brain Science. Join clinical psychologist Muriel Reese and Adam Sokoviak as they explore the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and being human. Here's a quick taste of what you can expect. It's from episode four about coping skills and strategies. Take a listen. I often use this acronym with people when they're trying to cope, because, and it's HALT, H-A-L-T, HALT. Because if we are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, your coping will invariably look different. I don't care if you're 3, 33, 73. Right. If you are hungry or hangry, angry, <laughs> lonely, or tired, you just have less to be able to navigate it. Brain Science is a great podcast. Check it out at changelog.com slash brain science or just search Brain Science in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. You'll find it. While you're at it, upgrade to our master feed at changelog.com slash master and let your podcast app download all the shows we produce. Then you can pick and choose the ones you're interested in the most and skip the rest. What have you got to lose? All right, back to the show. When you guys were deciding to actually make these optimizations, was it because you were seeing people do what you're saying? Like they were they were commenting these things out and doing that? And in, like, was it because you wanted to make sure code was more correct? Or was it because like, you thought we want code to stay readable? So like, we need to improve on that? Like, what was the motivation, I guess, behind improving this when arguably somebody could do like what Matt said and 
get rid of it themselves if they really wanted to. Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, pretty much everything you said. Uh, I think the main reason is we don't want people to remove a defer for performance reasons when it's going to make worse readability and it could make it incorrect uh, in that web server case at least and, and other cases, right? So, you know, the main thing I would say is readability. I, I, you know, you'd rather, you know, this, this feature is great and we'd rather people, you know, are using it and you get that readability of the lock and unlock and not just readability and maintainability, right? You know, once you move it, the, the unlock to the exits, what if someone adds a new exit? a new early return and they forget to do the unlock, right? So maintain it, readability, maintainability, and then, well, and the maintainability, that, that's a correctness problem too. And it's especially a correctness problem that's really hidden if it's a panic, right? And, you know, maybe this is a library and, you know, they figure, oh, we don't need to deal with a panic, but then you put that library in a web server and you want that web server to keep running even after one of the threads has had a problem. So all those reasons. We have a question from a live listener. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there a way to call defer only in the case of a panic? So you only pay the penalty when it's needed. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, no, we don't currently. There's nothing in the language. That was kind of a little bit what Matt was saying. Uh, any way to stop defers. There's no way to stop defers. Yeah, so you you have to run that code and and the, the thing is you just do a quick check of course but you do have to run the deferred function how expensive is it uh, and obviously i don't mean cash although i'll be clear i'm i will still pay for it, it it's that good mm -hmm. but what how expensive is it like before your optimization uh yeah i can give you some numbers just on a linux amd 64 machine pretty fast so the rough numbers are that a function call might take one nanosecond. So obviously, you know, we have very fast processor, gigahertz processors, you know, function call might take one, two, three nanoseconds. If you then, uh, a defer call has been getting faster and faster over the past time, but even with stack allocated defer records, which is 113, um, the defer overhead plus the function call is about 35 nanoseconds. Okay, instead of two or three nanoseconds. So if that call is a call to unlock, which takes another nanosecond or two, then you have the unlock call and the function call take a couple, three or four nanoseconds, and the defer itself is taking 35 nanoseconds. Um, so, and then with with the optimization that we've made in 114, the extra overhead is just about a, a nanosecond. So now, you know, the, the call plus the unlock, maybe three nanoseconds, and another nanosecond is doing the defer bits and storing it to the stack and checking the defer bits and, and all that. Wow, that is amazing. It's a really good optimization. It, it doesn't, <laughs> uh, you know, if the function call is much more expensive, it doesn't matter. These are nanoseconds. But if the function call is uh, very inexpensive, like a lock or unlock, it does matter. Yeah, so that's a good point for uh, any people that are new to Go that might be listening. You, just, you hear these numbers and think, well, these nanoseconds, what doesn't make it? It's not going to matter at all. But of course, if you think about that at scale, imagine you've got either loads of users or you're doing loads of work. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it just sort of adds up. But f yeah, f from that down to just one nanosecond for defers, that is genuinely exciting. Yeah. The interesting thing about performance numbers like that is like most of the time, those performance numbers or even like memory allocations, that sort of thing doesn't matter until when it does matter it really really matters like so mm -hmm. that's the hard part is it's when it does matter it's a big deal i see oh and also i, I think the original part of the question was have we seen this and yes there you, even in the just the go 
GitHub, the repo, the Go language itself, you see this um, both in the libraries. People have removed defers for performance reasons. And, you know, definitely you see it in other, of course, other Go projects, people will do it. And, you know, sometimes it's not totally necessary. They see defer overhead, but it's like 1% or half a percent, but they still feel like, you know, in the profiler, they still feel like, okay, I want to change this defer. So we'd, we'd rather not have people remove the defer to eliminate that 1% or 2% or whatever overhead that they see. So hopefully now, you know, they will not see that overhead and there'll be no motivation to remove the defer. Will we see people putting defers back into the standard library, do you think? Yeah, uh, right. I think we should. So that will be next release, yes. Yeah. Do you think with this optimization, we can start to say that we're reaching RAII performance on par with C++ or we are on the way to doing that? Uh, Yes, I think so. Um, I, I think... Yeah, it's much more of the overhead that you would expect kind of from the normal semantics um, and just like C++ and so forth. So I think there are more optimizations to do. And the GCC compiler, which does C++, of course, is many, you know, has been evolving for years and years and years and all that. And there's also a trade-off of like how much information you store on the side and so forth to make exceptions and zero overhead in GCC took a number of years and it requires you know, information on the side, which we have as well, but they have a lot of information and stubs and so forth. So yes, I would say we're, we're pretty close and they're, they're, uh, you know, we're quite close as you can see from those numbers. And, uh, you know, there's maybe little optimizations we can do further. It's great. So when you're making changes like this, how do you go about testing it to make sure, like, do you know what I mean? Because obviously mm-hmm. if there was a bug in this, it could be a really big deal. So how do you go about making sure that that's actually like reliable and that you're not breaking anything? Yeah, I think, you know, the Go builders are an awesome resource. Obviously all the tests are already in the Go source tree. And then I added a whole bunch, a bunch more of defer tests. And, you know, being in Google, there's also an advantage you have of the Go, whole and Go, entire Go source code to kind of test. So um, that's an advantage we get inside Google not, uh, that you don't have outside. And that's kind of a little more packaged up. You can kind of run tests on that in a kind of methodical way. So you really just have to kind of go through all the cases and write test cases for them and then run through a really large amount of code. And then, you know, running on all the architectures, the Go Builders really helps as well because you get a variety of timings. Um, The Go Builders have tests for, you know, running on different kind of distributions and then long tests and the short tests. And um, you can run with debug mode, you know, sort of all the debug flags enabled and disabled and so forth. So... I don't. I wouldn't say there's a magic magic bullet, but it's it's running on a whole variety of tests and a whole variety of situations. And it must be rewarding to know that if you can make any difference there, that given how widespread Go is, it, it the impact that has is massive. It is nice. Yes, definitely, it's nice to um, have an effect on a you know whole large ecosystem. Yeah, and and what's nice from our side, from the users point of view is we get to just use these language features and the nice people in the go team are gonna will keep squirreling away making it better for us uh, making it faster and it's it's nice to you know you realize also uh you know anything you can do so that a a new person to go doesn't run into the a problem right you know a mistake or whatever You you make something that doesn't uh, they don't have to learn that defer is slow or something. They, they defer is absolutely what you want to use. So it's nice to attack those problems. So I assume this means that like with the beta release, it's going to be very important for people to test it too, just to you know, sort of double check that whole thing. 
Um, yes. Is that out yet, or is that later? Just about alpha. Let's see. I'm double checking. John, you're, you've turned into like a, a new tech manager you're like have you checked it for bugs when's it gonna be ready <laughs> that's no i mean like, like this is on, one of those mate. things where it's fun to grab and try it out and make sure it's still working and yes. i think yeah. welcome feedback absolutely because there yeah. might be some abs- obscure case yeah. i need to double check we were targeting for the beta one this week um okay. so i think maybe in the next couple of days beta one one twelve uh one fourteen will be out okay i also think like having more people run the beta versions is very useful and since we have people listening, it's nice to tell them, go grab it, use it, try it. Just because the more people that use it, the more likely we are to prevent bugs and things like that from being slipped in. Exactly. We want to see all, hear about all bugs. Right. And this is one of the many runtime uh, changes that are being made for 114. So Yes, there are memory optimizations and uh, some other uh, optimizations check to uh, delays um, for in it's called asynchronous preemption, but delays in, in running the garbage collector and so forth. Yeah, for the scheduler. Yeah. I want to see time sleep optimized because it can really take a lot of time. That, that can. <laughs> All really, right. No, I mean it. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's been stupid. <laughs> Just a, I wanted to say thank you for the, all the effort that goes into these things because genuinely, like it, it makes a big difference, um, and it's nice to know that there's good, smart people working on these hard problems for us. So I, I mean that, Dan. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the team is pretty amazing. I mean, both inside Google and outside Google, and obviously over many years, it's just been optimizing continually. So uh, yeah, it's very nice to help out and and um, you know hopefully improve someone's program and so forth. That's great. I'm going to ask live listeners if they have any questions to please put them in um, GoTimeFM channel now, ask now, or forever hold your peace. We have a especially performance channel. We have a very live and active Dan. I'm not sure if you're in Gopher Slack at all, but the performance channel is quite lively, giving them a little shout out. Okay. Um, and they were, they were quite excited to have you on as well. I don't think as excited as Matt, but <laughs> almost as excited. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I've had um, I've had strong words with people on this subject. I actually advocate for it a lot, and sometimes people w- would be upset by the performance thing. Naturally, I dig into their use case, and it won't in that particular case it won't make the slightest bit of difference to them. But it does make a difference to people, and so now it's that. I mean, that, that is a massive uh, optimization. So I really feel like that has now gone. We can now. There is no reason to not use defers. So, yeah. It's let's, getting let's rid of that, it. especially if any of those people happen to teach or anything like Like, you don't want them to, to teach that and then somebody right. be like, oh, I shouldn't use that and not really understand why they shouldn't be using it. Or, you know, like we mentioned, like if you're opening a file, it doesn't really matter. Yes. Um, but th- there's a lot of people that probably don't even realize that because somebody else got bit with a lock or something else and, and told them, don't do it there. And especially junior developers, we talk about that a lot where they just don't understand necessarily why they shouldn't use it. So they're just like, oh, I don't use that now. You don't want them to have this vague idea that, you know, oh, defers are bad or something. Yeah, because once they get that vague idea, it's very hard to change that perception in that mind, right? It's, you, it is there. It's in. Yeah. The, it's already here. That's the thing that there is now. A, there is now a challenge going to be, I think, because I've seen it already. I've seen this. It, there's, there's already this now uh, religion against defer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have to go and find those churches and, you know, we're going to proselytize. We're going to have to proselytize. I think, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. I think the first stop is performance channel and, uh, go for Slack. I think that that is going to be where the message will be sent. Like, please test beta one. 
<laughs> go at one fourteen. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah use try it out. Uh-huh. Use defers <laughs> to your heart's content, just like Matt Ryan. <laughs> yes, and then, I already was. And then profile your program and and see that you know, or you know, measure and and uh, see that there's the defer obit is is uh, not showing up. So. Yeah. But, yeah, this means the uh, Go standard library could have a lot of first time contributor changes that are all just putting the defer back in and getting rid of everything Ooh. else. Oh yeah. Okay. Yes. I I I uh, I sense a hackathon coming on or some kind of fun. Yeah, hmm, giving ideas, John. <laughs> yeah, the defer events tend never to happen. <laughs> I don't know why that is. <laughs> uh, oh, that was dryly and perfectly delivered, Matt. But um, Actually, is that why you like defer so much? Are you a procrastinator? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, wow. I think, I really think that Matt missed his calling as a stand up comedian. <laughs> totally yeah it's funny i mean he can still be one he just has to choose his audience very wisely it's got to be a tech well, audience well he he has go time fm i yeah. think the funniest low-key podcast out there thing is no one li- in tech no one likes a stand-up comedian you just want them to get on tell us what you did yesterday tell us what you're doing today and if you've got any blockers and get off you know what i mean Aww. no one wants the uh yeah there you go see that's why i didn't I'll stick to programming. I mean, yeah, well. there's only three people here. <laughs> you might have a whole audience that's live listeners that's laughing right now. Oh, yeah, let's assume that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure this could be edited to make me not sound like an idiot, I think. No. You know what we need? We need 1990s sitcom uh, audios, right? Like the 1990s with the laughter. Laugh track. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, that's what, yes. That's what Dan track. said earlier. I'm going to have yeah, to like... Yeah. I'm going to have to buy a bigger yeah. monitor if I'm going to put a soundboard on here as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can ask for post-production for our, our lovely show producers to, to do a nod to like some fun 90s sitcom with a laugh track. It would be yeah. fun. <laughs> That's a great idea. Okay, yeah. so I'm not seeing any questions, so I'm just going to go ahead and wrap this one up. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us on Go Time. Uh, we hope you'll come back next week. And come join us live sometime in the GoTime FM Slack channel on the Gopher Slack. All right, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of GoTime. If you're not yet, hang with us in Gopher Slack. We have a channel called GoTime FM. Look it up, you'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share code, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fast, the our bandwidth partner, Rollbar for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the Changelaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for Changelaw Master in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.
and then I think there's music there or something. I don't close this thing out very often, so I don't know. Yeah, I think, yeah. Okay. I mean, hopefully the... <laughs> yeah, we rely a lot... Dan, we rely a lot on post-production. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You haven't done laugh tracks yet, but... Not yet. Not yet. This Not might yet, be the, the us, one. I, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think we've deferred the laugh tracks to this episode. Ah, that's, going in. Yeah. that's going in the show. Yeah. Oh, yeah? I yeah. try. We should have, like, go f- at GopherCon, we should have, like, a comedy thing where people can write jokes about Go. Uh, oh my gosh i'd love that i think so too instead of the lightning talks have like a small section for like lightning comedy lightning jokes yes that would be great (laughs) you could try and change the trend where all the jokes are about go and going and all that and now you have jokes about defer as well yeah exactly no puns keyword yeah we could totally move beyond we like go puns are so 2019 we're totally meaning 2020 (laughs) yeah we need new comedy yeah Mm. absolutely like uh (laughs) yeah i can't think of anything that's why we need it 